<laughs> so we're doing this um, sermon series on Abraham and Sarah, and we've got this parallel uh, thing that we're doing where we're celebrating all of our ministries, and <laughs> Jason pointed out to me that they kind of drew, drew the short straw on the scripture passage <laughs> for music ministries. This is um, a challenging passage today, as you'll hear, but uh, man, that was a fantastic way to open our service, and I'm looking forward to how the rest of it unfolds. So I fell in love with the Bible 20 years ago. I do know that that sounds corny, and I know that sounds like a very preacher thing to say. Uh, You might even assume that preachers feel contractually obligated (laughs) to say things like that. Um, But it's true for me, and it was not something that I expected when I started seminary, which was 20 years ago this month. I mean, I, I knew the Bible was important, of course. I was very excited to learn all that I could about it. I knew that I had a lot to learn at that point in my life, but I was not expecting to love it like I do. Having said that, uh, there are some passages in this book that I really uh, struggle with. We've been planning a sermon series actually for January where we're going to be talking about troubling passages of the Bible. It's going to give us a chance in January to explore some of those most challenging texts. And if I were to make a list of those passages, actually our reading for today would be very near the top, if not the top of that list. Uh, Instead of waiting for January, though, we're going to tackle this one today because it is a famous part of the story of Abraham and Sarah. Uh, If you've been around the church very long, you may, may know the story we're about to read. So my first year in seminary, I took a a year-long course, the required course on the Old Testament. I figured I would start in the beginning uh, because I had lots to learn. And our teacher was, our professor was a guy named Dr. Roy Heller. He's still there. Did you guys have Heller too? Um, Just one of the best teachers I've I've ever had. And I just, like I said, fell in love with the texts that year uh, under his teaching. And at the very end of the year, on the last day of class, I'll never forget this. Uh, If you've been in my Bible studies before, you may have heard this story, but the last day of class, uh, he looked out at all of these aspiring pastors and preachers, and it was an intro class to the Old Testament, so there are lots of people in the class. And he said, if you have spent your entire year with this text, if you've spent this entire year reading everything I've asked you to read, and you have not read something in these passages, in these pages, that disturbed you or troubled you, Uh, If you have not read something in this book that, and here he paused just a minute, uh, that you just don't agree with, then you have not read it closely enough, (laughs) and you need to come back and repeat my class next year. (laughs) And he wasn't at all kidding. I'm not sure anybody took him up on that offer. And then he offered us uh, some metaphors for our encounter with Scripture, how we read the Bible. One of them was the, uh, the metaphor of a wrestling match. Now, if you, if you join my Genesis study in September, you're probably going to hear some of those other, other metaphors that he used. But he read the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel at Peniel. That's in chapter 32 of Genesis. Again, we'll cover that in my Genesis class this fall, if you want to join us. And he said, the thing about a wrestling match uh, is that you're all wrapped up with your opponent. And sometimes your opponent gets the better of you, and sometimes you get the better of your opponent, but the only way that you are guaranteed to lose is if you let go. His point uh, was that when we come across a challenging text in the Bible, we need to hang in there. (laughs) We can't ignore it. 
We can't just skip over it. We have to, we have to wrestle with it. And the last thing that we should do is to give up on this life-giving book uh, just because there's some stuff in here that makes us uncomfortable. If you're familiar with that story in Genesis 32 about Jacob wrestling with an angel or with God, it's unclear in the text which, but he wrestles with God and he wins. (laughs) And he gets a blessing. And he gets a new name. Jacob, in that moment, becomes Israel, which literally means the one who strives with God. And he walks away with a limp, (laughs) which I've always taken to mean that he was changed by that encounter, not harmed by that encounter. And what we're going to do today is uh, see if we can't have that kind of experience with what I think is maybe the most challenging text in the canon, at least for me. Let's see if we can find the blessing in these verses and open ourselves to the possibility of being changed. As I mentioned, this is the fourth and final week of our back to school sermon series called It's Complicated, the story of Abraham and Sarah. Uh, For the first three weeks of this series, we've been talking about this offer of a relationship that God makes with Abraham. We've talked about how that offer of a relationship included the promise both of land and of an heir uh, who would be the, the patriarch, the source of many descendants, descendants as numerous as the stars for Abraham and Sarah. We talked about how uh, the land portion of that promise was delivered on pretty quickly, but that the promise of an heir was not fulfilled for almost an entire generation. And we talked about how uh, Sarah gets antsy and she tries to take matters in her own hands uh, in the complicated story of Hagar and Ishmael. But God, we read, remained faithful to the promise, and Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah. As our passage begins, uh, some unspecified number of years have passed. My uh, HarperCollins study Bible calls this the command to sacrifice Isaac. This is Genesis 22. I'm going to read the first eight verses now, and we'll come back to the rest later. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the author of Genesis. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. This is the word of God for the people of God. 
Thanks be to God. So one of the things that challenges me most about this passage is that I personally do not think of God as a testing God. Now look, there are several uh, important places in Scripture that present God in this way, to be sure. The entire book of Job, which is a book that I love, has that as its kind of basic premise. If your understanding of God includes this notion of testing, if perhaps you've gone through a challenging trial of some kind and uh, that helps you make sense of it, then obviously you have plenty of passages of Scripture to support that theology. And at this point in my life, you know, I have enough theological humility to realize that some things are just above my pay grade, and I am totally at peace with that. But for me, that is not the way that I think about God. And the idea that God would test Abraham with the sacrifice of the son for whom he and Sarah had so long yearned seems, you know, capricious at best. And there is no part of my theology that thinks of God, that understands God to be capricious. When Abraham first meets God, he's asked to walk away from his past in hopes of a future promise. As we've read over the past few weeks, 25 years pass until the birth of Isaac, and then some unspecified number of years pass before our passage this morning. I'm going to come back to that point in just a minute. And then here in our text for today, it seems as though God is asking Abraham to give up his future, along with the promise of descendants as numerous as the stars. It's an incredibly uh, unexpected and complicated turn in the story of Abraham and Sarah. And while the notion of God testing Abraham in this way, in the words of Dr. Roy Heller, disturbs me, (laughs) troubles me, I listened closely enough in his class 20 years ago to be convinced Uh, that if I wrestle with this text long enough, I just may get a blessing. Now, in a quick reading, Abraham, I don't think, comes off looking all that great. God summons him to do this terrible thing, and true to his character, I suppose, Abraham gets on the road without so much as a follow-up question. I mean, you'd think he'd ask at least a couple clarifying questions of God. But just as he responded to the initial call from God back in chapter 12, Abraham's response to God is immediate and it is complete. God calls, Abraham does as he is asked. He and Isaac and a couple of servants go on a days-long journey to some unknown place to do an unimaginable thing. Now before we finish the reading, I want to point out something that is not obvious in English translation. Uh, I used to read this story and assume that uh, Isaac was young, and, and maybe you do too. Oftentimes, I would say usually, actually, when the story is depicted in art, uh, Isaac is either a child or youth age. And let me tell you, there are some doozies in art <laughs> depicting this story. I looked up a few to maybe show them on the screen and decided, no, I don't think I'm gonna do that. Now that assumption is partly because of the way that the story flows in the Abraham cycle. The birth of Isaac happens uh, at the beginning of chapter 21, which is just just really a few verses before our text for today. We read in that 21st chapter that the child grew and was weaned. No specifics about how old that was. Um, There's something uh, then 
what following that, that sentence, the child grew and was weaned, there's some intervening material that, that wraps up the story of Ishmael. There are some verses that seem a little bit like a diversion where Abraham interacts with a guy named Abimelech. And then our passage for today begins with the words, after these things. But the author does not tell us how long after these things God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son. Now in the translation we're reading, Abraham calls Isaac the boy, uh, but in Hebrew that actually does not imply a child like it does in English. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus says that Isaac was 25 years old when this story happened, and in some rabbinic traditions, it's thought that Isaac was as old as 37 when this happened. All of which is to say, uh, we don't know how old Isaac is in this passage because the text does not tell us. Now, let me be clear, it's still not great parenting on Abraham's part, right? Whether Isaac is 10 or 37. Uh, But I do think it changes the emotional impact of the story. Much more to the point for us today, there's a a detail in here uh, that I think actually does provide a blessing. We're going to get to that after we finish the story. So, Let's finish it up. Genesis 22, verses 9 to 19. Listen again, friends, for God's word. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything for him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. It's about time, Abraham said. (laughs) Surely that got lost somewhere. Some monk forgot to copy that verse. (laughs) And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you, and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies, and by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Amen. I am guessing, however each of us reads this story, all of us agree on a few things. The God I believe in is good and gracious and benevolent and merciful. The God that I believe in is the God who told the prophet Jeremiah, surely I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare and not for your harm to give you a future with hope. And even though Jeremiah lived centuries after Abraham, I believe that Abraham believed in that same God. I believe that Abraham knew that God would never demand such a thing of him. 
Now, in terms of literary analysis, there's a, a, a very striking pattern in this story. It repeats itself three times. Three times in this story, Abraham is summoned, first by God, then by Isaac, then by the angel. And three times he responds the exact same way, here I am. And then three times the summoner expects something of Abraham. God commands him. Isaac asks a question. The angel releases him from the test. And there's just one variation in this pattern. It's a, it's a variation that, uh, in literary terms now, draws the reader's focus, certainly in the original Hebrew. It comes in verse 8. And if you ask me, verse 8 makes all the difference. Verse 8 is the most important verse in this passage. When Isaac, however old he is, asks his father where the sacrificial lamb is, Abraham responds with what I believe is the true sign of his faith. God will provide the lamb. Now, he had hinted at this uh, back when they left the servants, telling them, we will come back to you. Because I believe it was inconceivable to Abraham, inconceivable to Abraham, that the good, gracious, benevolent, merciful God who had, who had called him into a relationship decades before <laughs> and led him to the promised land and assured him of descendants as numerous as the stars, it was inconceivable to Abraham that this God would expect him to do an unimaginable thing. My mentor in ministry and my dear friend, Reverend Jack Soper, who is now retired in Massachusetts, maybe watching this right now, preached a memorable sermon on this many years ago. And one of the things he said in that sermon was that he believed that as Abraham raised that knife above his head, his absolute faith in the goodness of God would have led him to hold that knife aloft for as long as it took. <laughs> waiting for God to intervene. He never would have hurt his son because he knew that God would never expect him to. He would have waited until judgment day if he had to. And if there's anything that we've learned about Abraham over the past month, it's that he's a patient man. And God, after all, had surely taught him patience in the long years of their relationship. I mean, it's true. One way to read this passage is to say that Abraham passed God's test by his willingness to do the unimaginable. That's certainly one way to read it. Uh, plenty of people have read it that way over the centuries. That's a, that's a faithful way to read it. But in my own wrestling with this text, that just doesn't work for me. As much as I struggle with the notion of attesting God, the true test in this story, it seems to me, is just how deeply we believe in the goodness of God. That's the test I believe Abraham passed, even if he and Isaac will have to spend years in therapy <laughs> to work through all the emotional trauma of this incident. <laughs> and I wonder if uh, there's a, a challenge a difficulty, a test, if that language works for you, in your life right now that can only be solved by an unshakable belief in the goodness of God. 
I think all of us have those times in our lives. From time to time, maybe you're going through one of those times right now. But, and if so, <laughs> the Bible makes clear over and over again from these oldest stories of our faith through the last verse of the book of Revelation that we can surely rely on the provision of the God who is always on our side. That, for me, is the blessing in this text that literally took me 20 years of wrestling to discover. So that's a wrap on our series about Abraham and Sarah, two imperfect people doing the best they could to live faithful lives each day. (laughs) That sounds an awful lot like every one of us, I think. Life is complicated. Each of us is complicated. Thanks be to God for the gracious and faithful God who loves us and is with us through it all. Amen.